Omajana Trimanandasya, Janajana Salakaya, Chakshuran Militanyena, Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha, Panchakopatu Vishya, Kripasindavi Vicha, Titanam Pavane Bhyovashna Vijid Munamaha, Om Namo Bhagavati Vasudevaya, Om Namo Bhagavati Vasudevaya, Om Namo Bhagavati Vasudevaya, Nasta Preeshu Abhyeshu Nicham Bhagavata Sevaya Bhagavat Yutamashloke Bhaktir Bhavati Naistaki Good evening everyone. We will continue discussing Srila Jiva Goswami's Tatvasandarbha discussing the last four Anuchedas. Uh, so we're coming to an end and we will finish up here before Swami Tripurari arrives for his fall visit. So in our last class we were discussing the three Purushas Adiyatmika, Adidaivika, Adibautika, and how these three Purushas have their their realm of influence upon the uh, Atma, the Jivatma in particular. Jiva because they have some influence. So that's actually what we're going to be discussing this evening is the Anucheta from last class dealt with these three items, Adiyatmika, Vibhautika, and Daivika, explain their natures. They're basically called the three interdependent divisions of embodied selfhood. Adiyatmika, the Jiva, Adidaivika, the influence of the the devas upon the senses, and the Adibautika, the seat of the senses, the material body. Of course, your question is very, very much to the point, but in the verse from the Bhagavatam, they are referred to as Purushas. So you would say, well, how are they the Purusha? And in in the last class, that was discussed to some point. They all have some realm of influence. The Jiva has a realm of influence in that it is able to perceive. uh, And it has a sense. It has various senses which can perceive light, sound, smell. So it's the seat of the senses in that the the subtle senses are there. And then we have the Adidaivika, which is the Tan Mantras, the actual objects of the senses. So without sense objects, There's no value to senses. If there was no sun, what value is there of of having sight? 
there was no foodstuffs, then what value is there of a tongue? The ability to taste. And then we come to the to the other Purusha, which of all of them seems the most the most far fetched, I guess you could say, the body, the seat of the senses. What's inert matter? But if you didn't have an eye, you would not be able to use your sense of sight, and you would not, without the sun, be able to see. So they're called interdependent purushas. So this evening, Jiva Goswami is going to say, okay, we're calling them purushas, but they're not the ashraya. And Anucheta 60 this evening, the Asraya is its own independent shelter and thus the shelter of all. The Jiva is the shelter of the ability of the senses. The Devas are the shelter of the sense objects. And the body itself is the shelter of the sensual organ or the well, the way it's explained is that the sense of sight is subtle, but it still needs a gross manifestation. You still need to have an eye. But we do know that even without a functioning eye, there is seeing. When we are sleeping, we are cognitive of of sense objects, although they're not there, still the ability to perceive something that would be in sight is there even in sleep. So I think as we go into this evening's Anucheda, this will all become clear. So the verse under consideration and again, remember, with the Sundarbas of Jiva Goswami, his primary pramana, his primary evidence for all of the subtle, psych, subtle spiritual points he's trying to convey in his writing, the primary pramana, the primary evidence for all the points he's trying to make is Srimad Bhagavatam. Now, he will quote other puranas. He will quote directly from the Upanishads, but his primary evidence is Srimad Bhagavatam because it is the spotless Purana and it has one supreme Ashraya which we've just found out of, the, of all of the items presented in this particular Purana the supreme is the shelter, the Ashraya of all. So the verse that he uses this evening for his primary praman, one other thing I want to say in that regard, it, going forward in the in his Sundarbas, we'll find also that he relies on the verses of the Bhagavatam itself and on the interpretation of those verses of Sridhar Swami. As we go forward, we'll see that when he looks to, to the meaning of any specific verse of the Bhagavatam, 
that he's using in evidence, he wants to use the presentation of that verse based on the commentary of Sridhar Swami primarily. He also differs with Sridhar Swami at times. He completely points that out. Sridhar reads this, this verse this way, but it could also be seen this way. And I think my way is a better way for this particular subject that I'm trying to convey to you. That's the way of the, of the commentators. It's not that they discredit. Jiva says, when I, I'm trying to get a particular point of cross. So therefore, I'm not going to use Shridhar Swamis. Please forgive me, because the point I want to convey is better conveyed when we look at the Sanskrit verse in this way. So we couple the first and second line together, not the, third, the, the second and third line together. So we read the sentence in this way. So we read the verse in this way, and I can convey my point better. Sridhar, he's, he's conveying a different point in his tika, in his presentation. So that will become more apparent as we go deeper and deeper into the Sundarbas. And we'll actually start to see the, the wonder of how these commentators enter into the mystery of the Bhagavatam. So much so that we'll be able to see, well, I can see how Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu could give 64 different explanations to one verse of the Bhagavatam. It's, it's possible. That's quite a feat. Of course, he is the supreme personality of Godhead. So maybe not so many other commentators can give 64. But certainly when we read Vishwanath Chakravarti's commentary on the Bhagavatam, we'll see that he'll give one and then he'll go and he'll say, but we could look at it this way or we could even look at it this way. And these three, the, and then, and this all of these apply and can be applied in the context of these verses the way they're presented in, in whatever narration it is. We can look at it this way and it works or this way and it works. We can also look at it this way and it works. That's why the Bhagavatam is unlimitedly. It itself is an ocean which we'll never reach the, the depth of. We can skim some surface with this limited intelligence in this Kali Yuga where we have so many things going against us. But any little understanding of the Bhagavatam, that is the greatest benefit to us. So even if we can just have a cursory understanding, that's good. So back to the subject at hand. The Asraya is its own independent shelter. We just read about Adiyatmik, Adibaudik, Adidaivik. They're interdependent. If, if one of the three is not present, then it doesn't work. It doesn't work. There is no cognition of the world of, of sense gratification, which is the world of the jiva in conditioned life, unless all three work in unison. 
So none of them are independently an ashraya. But they're all purushas in a very limited manner. So the verse he uses is mutual interdependence of these purushas is established. None can be an independent ashraya. That's Srimad Bhagavatam 2.10.9. Since we cannot perceive one item in absence of one of the other items, subtle sense, sense deity, and gross form, he who is independent of these three is the Atma. But the shelter of the Atma is the Paramatma. In the absence of any one of these three Purushas, the other two cannot be ascertained. So Swasraya, this word in the verse, Swasraya refers to Paramatma, and he's his own independent shelter. He's the witness of all of the sense engagement. One could refer to the pure living entity as Asraya. They could refer to a pure living entity, someone who's not under the influence of the modes of material nature. You could refer to them in a, as an Asraya, but only in the strictest sense of the term. And that strictest sense would be where we can co correlate Varanti Tat Tat Vavidas Tatvam Yash Janam Advayam Janam Advayam The nature of that non-dual consciousness, it's consciousness. So in the strictest sense of the word, we could refer to the Jivan Mukta as an Ashraya because of what? In his purest sense, he is conscious, just like Brahman, or the Supreme Brahman, Brahmati, however you want to perceive, however your, your line of discipline is perceiving the Absolute Truth. Brahmati Paramatmati Bhagavaniti Sabjate. but only strictly from the perspective that focuses on non-difference between pure jiva and paramatma as part and whole. A lot of what we find when we study these common, these, the sandarbhas of jiva is the fact that in the sandarbhas he is countering all misconceptions that can be there in the understanding of the Bhagavat Purana, the Srimad Bhagavatam. So you can imagine the, the level of logical argumentation that went on in his day of, amongst various scholars looking to the Bhagavatam, all from different schools, I mean, the Gyanis also use the Bhagavatam as a Purman to give evidence to their impersonalist 
conception, as do the yogis. So you'll find that he's bringing up something that we wouldn't really give consideration to. Just like your question in the beginning. What do you mean? What are they purushas? Well, it's purusha in the verse. So the words purusha use immediately there's going to be a class of transcendentalists that are, that are going to misunderstand the verse, not understanding it in the context of what's being presented. So similarly, this word ashraya. Ashraya, I'm sure that people could look to the ashraya and say, well, the jiva is an ashraya in a, in a sense, is it not? It's the shelter of the senses. It shelters consciousness. But then you have to deal with, well, is it different from consciousness? And you have to go deeply into an understanding of, of the tattva of the jiva to know exactly what do we mean when we say tatasta shakti of the supreme personality of Godhead. What constitutes that? The jiva is not an independent asraya, despite the verses which support such a position. Then jiva goes, okay, let's look at some of those verses. And he counters the verses. Although some verses designate jiva as a witness like Paramatma, he should not be considered the asraya. Jiva said, yes, there are verses that say the jiva is ashraya, but he's not the independent ashraya. So let's let's look at those verses. He lists three or four Vedic Upanishadic verses and counters them as a counter to such misunderstanding that could be applied to these verses. Jiva Goswami. He quotes from the Bhagavatam. The liberated jiva, the liberated jiva, free of samsara, impartially sees the transformations of the covering of the jiva known as the mind, which performs actions opposed to the Lord and which is made of maya. These transformations are without beginning, sometimes visible and sometimes invisible. None of them are an exclusive ashraya. The point's being made. Yes, the jiva can attain a level of liberation where he is simply what? An observer. But he's not the shelter of everything. Don't, as a student of spirituality and don't, as a student of the Bhagavatam, be carried away by commentaries that equate the limited capacity of the jiva with the complete sheltering of the Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Those conceptions will not serve your spiritual progress very well. And I think this will put this Anucheda in perspective for us. Jiva is the Ashraya, 
for the physical body it inhabits. So the jiva, the consciousness of a jiva gives shelter to a form. How does it give shelter? Well, it's given the opportunity to play out its karma. It has a limited range of creativity, as we went over when we went over the ten topics of the Bhagavatam. So the jiva has the ability to create reactions. That's it. We can't create a tree. We can't create the sun. But we can create karma. So in that regard, we are a shelter for a body which is an embodiment of the fruit of our activities called karma. Adi Devas are the Asrayas of the senses. So without the sun, the moon, without the air, without the water, without the earth, what would there be to perceive? We could have all the senses in the world. We have five for acquiring knowledge and five for action. But even if we had a million senses, without sense objects which are under the control of the, the devas, the administrators, and again, we went over this. What? We have such a hard, we may have a hard time putting our mind around the concept of demigods. But we have no hard time putting our mind around the concepts of, I can go into a large metropolis and everything's there. There's heat in the buildings, there's light in the buildings, there's water flowing, there's a, there's a, a sewage system. These were all created by a person. And we are so foolish, we look in the world and we say, well, this just happens by nature. Well, what controls nature? There are different living entities who are administrators of certain parts of the nature. There is an administration here of, the, of this material realm. And what God in his right mind would not delegate some of that work to other people that wanted to serve him? It just it's, makes perfect sense. That's the demigods. Without a physical body, the jiva would be unable to see a flower. If devas do not provide support, the senses cannot perceive. The proper perception of all three supports must be present. Adiyatmik, the jiva, adidaivik, potentiators, they give potential to the senses of the senses, potentiators of the senses. An Adi Bauti, visible body. Another nice example to understand the difference between the Supreme Asraya and us little teeny itsy bitsy Asrayas who have a little body and some senses and a lot of karma. There's a drop of water and there's an ocean. They're the same thing. There are the same substance, but a drop of water does not accommodate waves. 
You can't go surfing at a drop of water, nor sailing. A drop of water can't accommodate all of the living entities that live in an ocean. You can say they're the same, but there's a big difference between what's available in the ocean and what the ocean can accomplish. The ocean can come on the land and destroy a city. A drop of water can't do that. Nice analogy when it comes to understanding the difference between the Paramatma and the Jivatma. Bhagavan is the supreme substratum or shelter for himself as well as others. Anucheta 61. The second list of the Bhagavatam's ten topics also identify its subject as the ultimate shelter. The second list. Let's look at the two lists. We've already covered the first list, right? Responsibly. Atra sargo visargascha. Stanam posanam utaya. Manvantare sunukatha. Narodo muktir ashraya. That is Sukadev Goswami is presenting this ten topics of the Bhagavatam at the end of the second canto. Later, Sutta Goswami presents the same ten subjects using some different wording. Jiva Goswami in this 61st Anucheda says that this second list is truly equivalent to the first list. So that second list O Brahmana, authorities on the matter understand a Purana to contain ten characteristic topics. A major Purana. The creation of the universe. The subsequent creation of worlds and beings. The maintenance of all living beings, their sustenance, the rule of various Manus, the dynasty of great kings, the activities of such kings, annihilation, motivation, and the supreme shelter. Other scholars state that the great Puranas deal with these ten topics, while lesser Puranas may deal with five. So let's look at our notes and see what words from these two verses and what's being discussed there to see that Jiva Goswami and what he does in his Anucheda is he goes through and he equates them one on one. These two verses are talking about the same ten subjects. Creation, secondary creation, maintenance, protection, uti, creative impetus. Again, what is uti? What do we create? That's us. Uti. And in Sutta Goswamis, he uses the word Hetu. Manvantara, 
the, the changes of Manu, Isanukatha, Vamsanu Charita, science of God, the Katha, the Leela of the Lord, Naroda, Samsta, dissolution, the winding up of a material manifestation, Mukti, Samsta, liberation. Liberation in the sense of Sutta Goswami's verse means more than just the winding up of, I mean, means more than just liberation, but more of the specifics in the context of the verses that Sutta Goswami is speaking here, where first he speaks, just like Sukadev Goswami did in the second canto, Sutta Goswami in the tenth, twelfth canto, he explains these different items in subsequent verses. And that is primarily dealt with by Srila Jiva Goswami in his 61st Anucheda. And Ashraya, Apashraya, the Supreme Shelter. So again, back to liberation. Liberation is used differently by Sutta Goswami than Sukadev Goswami. But Jiva Goswami reconciles the two. Now in the Anucheda this evening, Jiva Goswami is going to deal with a, a few misconceptions, and we'll go through them quickly, regarding the Srimad Bhagavatam. So first he deals with the fact that when we look to the Srimad Bhagavatam, it needs to be considered a major Purana. Major Purana being that all ten items are dealt with they're dealt with significantly. They're fully explained. So in a major Purana, all ten items are fully put into context and explained. In a minor Purana, only five are dealt with comprehensively. Your minor Purana will deal with creation and dissolution making of a universe and the winding of it up, the genealogies of kings, their dynasties, their reigns, the reign of the Manus and the various universal administrators, and the histories of the sages, kings, and avatars, which really constitute what a Purana is. The other subjects are presented in the context of narrations by these saintly individuals, which in themselves present Dharma, the Sad-Dharma. This is what the material manifestation and your sojourn in it should be all about. See what the Dharma is and, and play out your material existence 
ultimately to the end at Mukti. Now for the for the Gaudiya Vaishnav, Mukti is of little significance. So Artha, Dharma, Karma, Moksa, that's okay. That's basically what is the objective of of all of the various Veda. These four items. Artha, Dharma, Kama, Moksha. Ending in Moksha. And we're off the charts. For most spiritualists, liberation is it. Let's, we got to get out of this place. It's the last thing we ever do. So if we get out of this place, we've done it. That's, that's the goal of human life. And the bhakta is like, yeah, no, I want prame. I could go here or go there, but without prame, I will not go anywhere. You could take me to Vaikuntha as long as it means that there's prame in the equation. Take prame out of the equation, I have no interest in, in Vaikuntha. I have no interest in liberation. I have no interest in powers, the siddhas. I actually have no interest in anything if it does not have prame. So, this is off the charts. This is radical spiritualism in a profound way. So let's end up this evening with these various misconceptions. A lot of the reconciliation between the two lists, that of Sukadev and that of Sutta Goswami, the second and twelfth canto, respectively, a lot of that reconciliation that Jiva Goswami presents to us comes from the commentary of Sridhar Swami, that great commentator on the Bhagavatam. Let's talk about some of the misconceptions. Some people believe that these ten topics of the Srimad Bhagavatam need to be chronologically presented. So therefore, the first canto is creation. The second canto is sub-creation. Well, we can see that doesn't apply. That's a misconception. What do we do with the extra two cantos? Oh, oh you actually, you, you're telling us that actually the Bhagavatam didn't start till the third canto when Maharaj Pariksit started to receive instruction from Sukadeva Goswami. What about in the first canto and all the, the protection for the devotees that was dealt with in just the opening of the book? These misconceptions really, they don't have any real significance to any true scholar of the Bhagavatam. These ten topics are spread throughout the Bhagavatam. Now there are some places where certain things are dealt with, like when we talk Ashraya, we talk the tenth canto. It's, it's where Krishna is really dealt with more exclusively than anywhere else. So you could say the tenth canto is part. But there again, what's that supreme personality doing in the tenth canto? Posadam. Protecting for the devotees, giving protection, sheltering the devotees. 
So you can't separate, you can't say it's just this. There's actually a chart that uh, is presented in the Sundarvas where every canto is there and what subjects are presented. Again, Sridhar Swami says you, you can't look at the Bhagavatam like that. But these items, learn what these items are, know what they are, and you will recognize them when they come up in the various discourses presented in the literature. With the exception, there's always an exception, with the exception of the sixth canto. This deals pretty much exclusively with the reigns of the Manus. So if you go to the sixth canto, that history there of this Manu and that Manu is pretty elaborately presented there in the sixth canto. Sridhar Swami's view is that virtually all ten topics are discussed in every canto, either directly or indirectly. One should understand that the first and second canto belong to the entire presentation of Srimad Bhagavatam. Why would they need to say that? Well, there must have been a group of of, of students of the Bhagavat that said the Bhagavatam doesn't really begin until Sukadev starts speaking to Maharaj Parikshit. So we could just discount the first two cantos. Jiva says you can't. Based on Sridhar, Swami says you can't. So you can't. So that's a misconception. Don't go there. Also remember that there's characteristics of the Srimad Bhagavatam talked about in other Puranas. The characteristics of the Bhagavatam were given. So you can't say the Bhagavatam is only those ten cantos from the second to the twelfth. I'm sorry, third to the twelfth. Because what? Remember, at the beginning of our study of Tattvas and Dharva, characteristics were attributed to the Bhagavatam by other Puranas, which could not be untrue in that regard. And one of the characteristics was it has Twelve cantos. And what was the other characteristic? It has 18,000 verses. Well, if you take off the first two, you're going to say that that statement is untrue? Well, if that's going to be your approach to studying the Vedas, you're going to have a hard time. We're up to Anucheta 62. Descriptions of the first nine topics intuitively signify the tenth, the Ashraya, part one. Anucheta 62 and 63. 63 is the last Anucheta. So we're done with the Tattvas and Dharva when we go through these two things where the ten topics are analyzed in detail. The nine topics are analyzed in detail, pointing to the tenth, the Ashraya. I'll stop there. Any questions? Thank you so much for your association. Hare Krishna.